The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. You're listening to The Views Room, brought to you from the staff of Breaking Views. I'm Anthony Curry, and joining me in the studio in New York today are Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. And Anna Shamansky. Welcome back, Anna. Hello. Now, later in the program, the three of us are going to have Richard Bills joining us to de-hype the hot new thing in Silicon Valley. It's a new way, or so they tell us, of, of raising capital rather than doing an initial public offering. It's called direct listings. First, Pete Sweeney dials up Gina Chon for a trans-Pacific chat about the latest so-called trade deal between the United States and China. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, but I am calling long distance to Gina Chon, our Silicon Valley technology columnist, also covers Washington for us. Um, and we're going to chat a little bit about this, I don't know what to call it, trade deal in <laughs> underway sort of kind of draft trade Partial deal? phase one, maybe. <laughs> so this seems to me very unambitious, Gina, and not what Trump was selling so far. What, what's your take? What what's What's coming underway here? Yeah, as you know, Trump is uh, a master at salesmanship, or at least he tries to be. But in this case, I think uh, a lot of people have figured out that it's not what it's, he's making it out to be. He announced what he's calling a phase one deal uh, with China, which he says is includes the I think he called it the best and greatest deal ever for farmers, which includes about up to $50 billion in agricultural purchases. He also said China would open up its financial services sector, and they had made some concessions on intellectual property protections. But none of those details have been revealed. The only real piece of information seems to be this agricultural purchase, which, as you know much better than I, the Chinese uh, haven't seemed to have confirmed. So that also seems to be up in the air. So what this exactly is, is um, still a bit unclear to all of us. The way he seems to be getting away with this is saying this is just an interim, like, or, or selling it as like a phase one, like this is just, just one deal and then we're going to have more and we're going to keep on haggling. But realistically, are we going to get much better than, than this? It seems like Beijing has been holding quite firm, seems to perceive that Trump is weak or, or distracted by his, his, his troubles with the impeachment inquiry and an upcoming election cycle and that this might be as good as he gets for now. Is, is that the way you see it? Yeah, I think despite all the tariffs and um, upheaval that a lot of companies have faced as a result of this trade war, it might not look a whole lot different than what was announced in this phase one deal. Uh, He did say that tougher issues like intellectual property theft and forced technology transfers, which American companies have long complained about, would be dealt with in these so-called phase two or even maybe a phase three (laughs) part of China's talks. But it's unclear what that will be. U.S. Chamber of Commerce official actually said what's being discussed on the IP front are what he called 20th century issues. So those are copyright and trademark infringement, but nothing about uh, data flows or any of the more um, recent issues that a lot of companies are dealing with now and will be dealing with in the future. Yeah, I note that when he got elected, Trump didn't win the right to his, his own trademarks in China, right? 
Um, so I think there was, <laughs> yeah, there was well, some and his movement for him well. on the first one. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, let me ask you, I mean, just a little bit more detail. The thing that's been held off by this has been this next round of tariffs that he was threatening. And that didn't seem to be very popular with either side. I mean, basically, if you're a, if you're a business person or, or an American consumer or, you know, a Chinese investor, is this on balance a win that it was it was set to get worse and, and at least it's not going to? I mean, that's uh, some consolation, um, especially as the holiday season gears up, uh, particularly in America, um, where a lot of these tariffs that were supposed to come online uh, this week were going to hit uh, consumers, basically like who the sh- uh, people who shop at Walmart. It was everything from holiday decorations to um, bike helmets, car seats for children, basically whatever you could find at a Walmart would probably have an extra tax. So it definitely helps on that front, but it's still a lot of things up in the air. I mean, they're still holding future tariffs over the heads of the Chinese and they could retaliate as well. Companies still don't know really what to do. And so a lot of them are already making decisions in terms of moving uh, production and, and sourcing of materials out of China because they they just can't deal with the uncertainty. Well, and the ones that are able to are the lucky ones, right? I mean, you can't, some, some of these supply chains are not things you can just photocopy and reproduce in, in Vietnam or Malaysia. Um, so it seems yeah, like you exactly. know, some guys are just going to be kind of stuck with it. Um, you know, certainly mm-hmm. NBA, for example, which is in trouble in China, is not going to be able to duplicate, you know, the power of its marketing machine in, in, in another market because there simply isn't one that large. Um, ditto for, for yeah. Apple, presumably. No, exactly. And you know better than me that, you know, there are certain things that the Chinese have just set up to do so well um, and that can't be replicated. And obviously, just the sheer number of of workers and infrastructure that they've built up are not going to be easy to find elsewhere. That said, it's not really a win for China either. I mean, they have they've kind of accepted Mm -hmm. this nasty new normal, but the old tariffs are still in place. Meng Wanzhou, the executive at Huawei is still under house arrest or whatever it is termed in, in Canada awaiting possible extradition. It seems like the, the legislature, uh, the Congress, and is, is still has has its knives out for, for China-themed companies and, and are, are getting excited about Hong Kong and, and Xinjiang. And that all seems like very bad news if you're, if you're a Chinese company looking for certainty yourself. You know, if Trump doesn't get reelected and, and the Democrats come in, you seem to think that might be even worse news for China. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, you know, China can win over Trump with flash over substance and probably get away with not making any substantive concessions and still strike a deal with Trump because what he really cares about in the end is reducing the uh, bilateral trade deficit. And so he just wants China to buy more things from America. He never really cared that much about uh, some of the other um, more structural issues. So that could be, you know, the best scenario that they could hope for, actually, because if it is someone like uh, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is gaining in the polls and has is uh, and the has mashed or or even surpassed uh, former Vice President Joe Biden in some of the the recent numbers. Um, she is much tougher when it comes to China, and she is not going to be, 
you know, flip-flopping. She's going to be consistent and uh, she's going to hold them to the line and has much higher standards when it comes to labor protections and human rights uh, standards. And she's been very outspoken about all of these things. So I think it's um, if they don't strike a deal with Trump, they could actually have a much better or a much worse situation, I'd say, uh, if it's someone like her in in the office. Yeah. Well, I guess for now, both sides can console themselves with soybean orders. <laughs> exactly. Uh, thanks for talking to me, Gina. Spotify and Slack started this trend, if not a debate about the merits of direct listings and if they're a better value for shareholders looking to go public. Richard Beals, you recently uh, decided to unpick the subject of the direct listing versus the initial public offering. And what's your conclusion? <laughs> I, well, I, horses for courses is my conclusion. Uh, it's uh, I think you can probably say, well, I think uh, somebody has said it's uh, direct listing is like an IPO, an initial public offering without the O. So it's a way for a company to go public for the first time, trade its shares for the first time, but without offering a particular batch of new shares. So that, that's the goal. Now, why would companies do that? Or why wouldn't they? I mean, I'd say there's one big pro and one big con. So the pro is that in theory, in a direct listing, the whole share, all the shares in the company are available immediately on day one, potentially. So you get a much better way of matching all the people who want the shares with all the people who want to sell the shares. In an IPO, sometimes it's as little as 10% or less of the shares and everybody else is not allowed to sell for some period. So there's a big difference there in how you balance buyers and sellers. The big con is if you want to raise capital, uh, direct listings do not raise capital. Let's let's dig down to that. Let's hit the second point. Why can't direct listings raise capital? Surely this is just all semantics because what you're talking about is a situation where for a direct listing to work where um, let's say the four of us in the room each own shares in a company that we either founded or worked for. Yep. The company isn't going to raise money, but the four of us have decided we're going to sell some of our shares. Yep. But So the shares exist, we own them. But yep. the company, the shares in the company also exist and the company effectively owns them. So why can't the company use the same process? Well, the company doesn't own any of its own shares unless it decides to buy them, right? And it only has new shares to sell if it issues them and that's raising capital. So and that right now would be um, regulated and classified and treated as an IPO. Where oh, so there's a regulatory um, There's some of that. Issue. And also in a direct listing, there are banks involved, but they're not underwriting the listing. So underwriting means they agree to buy the shares at a certain price if other investors won't. Uh, in, an, in a direct listing, you know, they, they don't have to buy or sell anything. They just have to persuade a bunch of buyers and sellers that they want to do that. So it seems like this is still, you know, pretty much a niche um, part of the industry. And it seems like it will probably continue to be that way because most firms going public actually do need to raise capital. But do you think that this could put pressure on investment banking fees? It could. I mean, the fees are are considerably less. An IPO runs 7% of the amount you raise, uh, sort of at least at the high end. But uh, as one of the investment banks pointed out to me, in an IPO, the, the sort of lead investment banks have to share that with a bunch of other banks who get involved in the underwriting. And in a direct listing, they're not underwriters. They're the only ones who are there. They don't have to share it. So they may end up about the same. Well, actually, I think that's probably true for those at the very bottom of the of the scale of doing an IPO. If you, if you think, you know, let's get 10 banks on an IPO, which frankly isn't necessary anyway, you'll have the top two or three banks getting the lion's share of the fees. Yes. So oh, I think the investment true. bank is probably spinning you a little bit of a yarn there because the guys at the top will always get more than they'll get in a direct listing, unless it's like a you know, General Motors being taken public by the, by the government and they pay very little. No, that may be right. I mean, I, I think 
what this all does show up is some dissatisfaction with the IPO process, the fact that it's a lot of fees, the fact that you, in many cases, have this quite large jump in share price on day one. Now, to, to an extent, that's intentional. But when it's really huge, some of the early investors, and this is coming from venture capitalists and so on, who've invested long beforehand in these companies, they feel that, well, why should a shareholder who buys on one day suddenly have a 50% gain on his shares after 24 hours when I've been sitting on this thing for so long that, you know, I feel like that's giving away value that shouldn't be given away. So, though, doesn't that give a lot more power to the private markets, which right now that's where you're seeing, you know, kind of a lot of good deals, a lot of good companies getting stuck, waiting longer to go public, because if you're getting people who are private, which is going to be a limited number of people who can do that, they're going to be getting a lot of that value creation. It's not going to be the public as it would be in like traditional IPO. Right. I mean, I I think in a direct listing, the idea is anybody who is already a shareholder uh, and wants to sell can sell. And anybody who isn't a shareholder can buy, obviously, up to the number of shares available in the whole company. So that means more people can buy. It's not limited to some group chosen by the investment banks underwriting the deal. And if you don't want to sell, you don't have to sell. So, you know, if you want to stay and retain your value as an early investor and, and ride the shares further up, at least that would be your thesis, I'm sure you can do do that, but otherwise they do, which is actually one of the interesting factors in the complaints about the IPO process. It's not like they want to sell anyway. So it'll be interesting if there are more direct listings, whether the the venture capitalists who've been complaining about IPOs actually want to sell their shares, because if they don't, their main complaint, which is about this mismatch of demand and supply, it'll it'll still apply. Yeah, because the whole thing is, it is a really rather bizarre argument they're making, because on the one hand, first of all, if you're a big venture capital uh, investor, you have a lot of say in how that company goes public right. and when and how. And also, you get to choose how much you sell. You can say, I'm going to sell virtually nothing or none. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait and see where that share price lands. Yeah. And I'm going to subject myself to the three or six month lockup period before I sell yeah. my shares. And also in an IPO, if the investment bankers come back to you as owners of the company and say, look, there's really strong demand mm-hmm. for this issue, the, the, Vs, the venture capitalists could say, OK, let's sell some of our shares too to, yeah. to even that out. But they tend not to. So that part of the equation is not really recognized in their complaints that actually they have a lot of control over this process. So the idea, I mean, and and I I think I know one one of the arguments you'll put back against this, but the the idea then for um, venture capitalists worried about this process in many respects is let's do a regular IPO where none of us sells the shares, we raise new capital for the company, and then we'll sell later on because then we don't get hit with the problem. And in fact, it may even help us because if the stock goes up and stays up, we're looking good. Yeah, and they they can do that. um, But there are other issues with the stock going up in a way that isn't sustainable, which is, again, what they worry about to some extent. Because yeah. the feature of the IPO is that you you sell the shares you said you're going to sell, which might be 10 or 15% of all the shares there are. And everybody else has to is not allowed to sell for six Including months. Including the employees. Like, Including I remember this was, a, this was a big issue with Spotify because yeah. um, they basically said they wanted to go this route because they didn't, there wasn't a lockup p- period. And the employees who had been, you know, sitting on these shares for a long time could go out. Well, to he, the well here's, a, here's an example from this year. Beyond Meat, hugely successful IPO by many standards. It tripled in share price on the first day, which kind of shows you why some of the venture capitalists involved in these kind of things complain a little bit. Um, and the shares then rocketed further and further and further up. Um, they're still about five times the IPO price, so that's pretty good, but they were 10 times the IPO price. And that's all in the space of time of six months when employees would not have been allowed to sell. So that they'll have, 
the employees who've done all the hard work, been given equity and think this is great. They see the shares rocket and then come halfway back to earth well, be- they come before, before they're even able to sell. There was some selling there, wasn't there? Or was that just a limited number of people? Or was that the company that decided to the sell? The company did another offering at a much higher share price once the yeah. shares were higher. But again, the, the lock, people locked up, I don't believe, have been able to sell. Yeah. But the, you know, this is the danger that you have this sort of surplus of demand. The shares shoot up before anybody who might have benefited from that within the company is allowed to sell. The shares have come down again. I mean, that, of course, can also happen with the direct listing. Right. And I, th- I think, you know, I mean, it may be now that we've seen WeWork's IPO flop and things like that, it may be that this this sort of complaints or this idea, which seems to have now suddenly come to the fore, is almost late because IPOs may not do that anymore. But I think in tech, particularly in Beyond Meat, has sort of behaved like a tech company, although it's perhaps not quite a tech company. And in tech, especially, the VCs have felt that these things have been on a roll, that, that these first day gains have been too big and that's partly the fault of the investment banks and you're paying the investment bank seven percent or at least a fairly high proportion of your proceeds and they're just not getting it right so they've been looking for yeah. something else it's strange isn't it? because i look back back in the 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 dot-com bubble of the late 1990s these first day pops were all over the place there were like 25 ipos being done in a week sometimes it got really over the top and there were some complaints and it led to you know the the, the launch of various auction platform so Hambrecht and co set one up uh google used one with right. morgan stanley for when it went public in 2014 not not considered a great success no i mean not a flop but not a success yeah. um and we consistently see different ideas come up for this so it does show us that, that people do have fears about or concerns about the ipo process um but, you know, it always amuses me that it comes down to the bankers, right? Because it is really up to the bankers who are conflicted all over the place. And I mean that actually non-pejoratively because they do have to work with both the companies. Right. And they work with the companies on a one-time basis or maybe two or three times more as an right. equity banker. Right. Like maybe you'll do the follow-on for them. But the investors you're talking with, A, you need to get them in each time so you deal with them then. But also then you hand them off to your, your traders so you don't speak to the, to right. the same people right. all the time. So if you get one wrong, the other suffers. So you've got to keep both of them nicely balanced. And, you, and you're choosing your investment banks because they talk to everybody. This, yeah. is, this is always the great question about conflicts, right? The reason you hire an investment bank is because they know the market. Well, they know the market because they work with other people in the market. Yeah. So, of course, there's an element of conflict to be managed if yeah. you want an expert advisor. Yeah, and then you get others like Lyft, I think, made a, a big play of bringing in very small companies either dealt with minorities or women uh, to make sure that you know, there was a full inclusion of potential shareholders. Still didn't help the IPO because, because at the end of the day it comes down to numbers, right? And right. The IPO is now down what by half. Uh, well, as price. of these as of these two direct listings, I mean not by half, but both Spotify and uh, Slack, which also did this, of uh, the shares have drifted gradually yeah. lower. But you know, I, I guess that those involved would say, well, at least that was kind of the a real market process. Yeah. It wasn't didn't start with an artificial thing. Mm. It's the, the fees intrigue me as well. What, what does it you put in the piece? It could be like you know. Fifteen basis points, or point, just over a tenth of a percentage of a percentage point that you get in fees on these of market cap, and that's that's the right. that's the difference because you're not raising capital, you can't measure it by proceeds. So if you measure at least on the relatively small sample I did, if you look at IPO fees as a percentage of market cap, not proceeds. So on an IPO, it'd be about 0.6 of a percent, and on a direct listing, about a quarter of that. I think that's one of the interesting things that may come out of this is that, you know, even the people closely involved with it are saying, well, maybe there'll be three to five of these next year. I mean, that's minuscule compared to the number of IPOs. So it's sort of a trend, but not a very big one because it doesn't suit everybody. But what it may do is, you know, 
some people have been saying, well, why can't we do a direct listing and immediately do an equity offering, which kind of is just like an IPO, only sort of putting two different parts together. Yeah. Um, and maybe there are ways that the IPO will evolve or the two will converge as something slightly different that everybody finds a little more um, useful. And that does seem a lot more reasonable, the idea of kind of letting the market set the price a bit more before you go to raise shares. Because, right. But it seems like if you're not allowing people to raise capital in this process, it's never going to be an enormous part of the market. Right, because the whole point is often to raise capital. Yeah. All right, Richard, thanks for walking us through that. You're welcome. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Richard Beals, Pete Sweeney, and Gina Chan. Hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and also check out our sister podcast, The Exchange. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.